Hey folks, Preet here. Former President Donald Trump has had a busy start to 2024. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals just heard oral arguments on Trump's claims of absolute immunity in the election subversion criminal case. The Supreme Court recently declined to consider the appeal for now. Meanwhile, Trump is fighting efforts in multiple states to disqualify him from running for president again, citing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Last week, the Supreme Court agreed to hear an appeal of the ruling that barred Trump from the Colorado Republican primary ballot. Joyce Vance and I discuss all that and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the Insider community. We are recording a little bit later than normal on Tuesday morning because we were just both in our separate homes watching or at least listening to the oral argument before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals by counsel for Donald Trump and lawyers for special counsel Jack Smith on the question of immunity regarding the January 6th related trial in the district court in the District of Columbia. And it was a pretty interesting oral argument. I think we should take one step back and just remind everyone what this is about. People will recall that Donald Trump has asserted what Joyce and I believe is an overbroad, many experts believe is an overbroad claim of absolute immunity against prosecution for acts taken while he was in office, even though he's no longer in office. That was heard by the district court. The district court rejected the claim of immunity. And remember that there was a chess move made by Jack Smith trying to go leapfrog over the appellate court to the Supreme Court, right? And the Supreme Court said, no, let the circuit court in D.C. decide it. And so that's what's going on now. Should we explain a little bit more about what the exact contours of the claim of immunity are? Yeah, I mean, this was a fascinating oral argument. It was hyper-technical in the legal sense, but I felt like the judges did a really good job of trying to use, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I felt like they were using plain language to make it a little bit more accessible because essentially the argument that gets made by Trump's lawyers here is that a president who is doing an act that is even tangentially official has absolute immunity from criminal prosecution, not just when they're in office, but forever after can never be prosecuted. So that's what this dispute is about. There's a related point that they're making, which is a little bit hard, I got to confess, for me to get my arms around. So they do concede that there are certain kinds of acts a president can take for which there would not be absolute immunity. So something that's purely, purely private, and maybe we can give some examples of that. Well, in fact, they did give examples, right? They were all things Democratic presidents did that were highly speculative, (laughs) but private. Yes. They also have said that there's a procedural bar based on a clause in the Constitution to this kind of criminal prosecution. So the argument is, let's see if we get this right, that if there is an impeachment and a conviction on related conduct to what might be put in an indictment later, then that indictment is proper. In fact, at the end of the oral argument, one of the judges in the Court of Appeals went back and forth with Trump's lawyer uh, again and again and again on this point that as a condition precedent to being prosecuted, the Trump lawyers argue there has to have been an impeachment and a conviction. Do you find that odd? Well, it's, it is a tortured argument, but I think it's the 
only argument that they could have made. And even here, you know, I, I think Judge Florence Pan really struggled to get this concession from Trump's lawyer. He did not want to concede any situation where a president could be prosecuted. And he kept saying, you know, but there are other arguments we would want to make. And she did a really nice job of, of putting his feet to the fire and saying, look, I get you have other possible defenses. But just here, if a president is impeached, convicted on the impeachment for the same or related conduct, can he be prosecuted? And they, she finally wrests that concession out of him. And of course, it's not, it's not a great argument for Trump because, as the government is careful to point out, that sort of, you know, very rigid jump through all of these hoops process was not what the founding fathers talked about when they wrote these provisions in the Constitution. Government's lawyer is very clear to say, you know, that's nowhere. You would expect that if there was this precise procedure, you would see it reflected in the historical documents, and it isn't. And he also explains why, in addition, textually and just practically, and in terms of how this has been viewed over time, that doesn't make sense, including the fact that Richard Nixon has to get a pardon because everyone understands he can be criminally prosecuted otherwise, impeachment or not. Yeah, I thought that was a powerful argument. Like, if the claim is true that Trump's lawyers are making, then Nixon wouldn't have needed and wouldn't have needed to accept a pardon, right? He was in jeopardy. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone has always understood that a president can be in jeopardy, even for doing things that are, you know, sort of official acts or tangentially related to being official acts, not purely, purely private. And Nixon, some of the acts he engaged in related to his seeking office as opposed to holding office, that's a distinction that the court and the lawyers talked about a bunch in oral argument today. There's also the other argument that I've heard some people make. I don't know that I heard it in this oral argument. There's a reason why the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice on more than one occasion has opined on whether or not a sitting president, while that person is in the office of the presidency, can be prosecuted because it assumes that such a person can be prosecuted after leaving office. So Everyone's understanding has been otherwise. So if that's true, why make the argument? Well, one reason to make the argument is even though we have operated in the way that you describe, even though the text structure and history of the Constitution is the way that you describe, on this exact point, the Supreme Court of the United States has never ruled. And in the absence of, and by the way, even if they had ruled, this Supreme Court is capable of overturning <laughs> yeah. its prior precedents. So just so you understand from a practitioner's lawyer's perspective, I think it's a failing argument, but it's a gambit that litigants make all the time because they have a shot and they maybe have a sympathetic court. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, they don't lose anything by making this argument. If they lose, they're no worse off. But, you know, Preet, it's interesting. You know who else assumed that former presidents could be criminally prosecuted? And, and the court pointed that out today in oral yes, argument. I, I like that exchange. Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump assumed that in impeachment, explicitly argued it. And the only thing that Trump's lawyer could do today other than sputter when that was raised, you know, what he was forced ultimately to say is, well, it's not race judicata, meaning you can't hold us to that here. Even though my client took that position, also took it when he was litigating with Cy Vance to the Supreme Court over the disclosability of tax information. Trump said, you know, I can be prosecuted when I'm no longer president. 
And his lawyer says, oops, sorry, we said it then, but you can't hold us to it now. Because you make the convenient argument, legally and factually, that obtains in the moment. And you let the chips fall where they may. And he, he is correct. You know, there's a different set of lawyers. There's a different circumstance. There's a different proceeding. You can't hold it against them. But it does, in the real world, where real human beings are deciding these matters and look for consistency and look for logic and look for a plain reading of either a statute or a constitutional provision, it does matter to them. Even as if as a, an official legal doctrinal matter, you can't hold them to those prior claims. It still matters, doesn't it? I think that's right. And, you know, I had been toying with the idea over the last week that maybe the Supreme Court would just affirm whatever the Court of Appeals did here without considering it. After hearing this argument and hearing sort of the legal twists and turns, but also the points like that one, I do think the Supreme Court will have to take this case, hold briefing, hold argument, and weigh in. How do you think this panel is going to decide? I think it'll be 3-0 against Trump, perhaps with concurring opinions. I heard Judge Henderson, the senior judge on the panel, really wanting to talk about the difference between sort of mandatory duties, things a president has to do in discretionary sort of things, ministerial versus discretionary acts, based on some doctrinal arguments that go back to the founding of the country. And I heard the government's lawyer saying, you know, you really don't need to go that far. You don't have to consider whether this was President Trump or private citizen Trump. You can just say no immunity post-presidency. But she seemed intent on going there. I think we may see a concurrence from her. And even, by the way, Judge Childs, the newest judge, the judge who was considered for the Supreme Court, went on the D.C. Circuit instead. I think she wanted to adopt the view that was asserted in one of the amicus briefs, which is that the court doesn't even have the opportunity to consider this issue before trial, that it would have to wait until after trial. The government politely said, Judge, we disagree with that. We do think that the prior legal decisions in this circuit, not in other circuits, which Judge Childs wanted to discuss, make it clear that there is an appeal now. And I think that that's because the government doesn't want to have the delay or the risk involved in a series of decisions. Judge Henderson, for instance, mentioned, well, maybe we should just send this case back to the district judge for her to make some additional findings on this issue before we proceed. And Trump's lawyer said, oh, yes, judge, you know, we're happy with that. And I'm sort of doing the math in my head about how many additional months that process would involve. So, of course, Trump's lawyers liked it. The government said, no, just decide it now. The rule is pretty clear. No absolute immunity. They pointed out, by the way, maybe there's some limited scope of immunity. You don't have to say it here. You can reserve it for the future where a president who's making a, a national security decision under very tight time pressure, relying on the advice of lawyers for the presidency about what is legal, maybe there's a small limited scope of immunity there. But not here when you've got a defendant who is interfering with an election and again, the government points to another amicus brief, one that's written by some former officials involving the vesting power clause, which essentially says there's an interest in the succession of government in seeing a new constitutional officer claim the mantle of the presidency following an election every four years, and that this is something in particular that a sitting president can't interfere with. 
I thought one of the most interesting things about the argument, and I'm glad we got to listen before recording this session or this episode, and what's probably the most accessible to lay people was the use of hypotheticals. So the parties write briefs, the judges comment on the briefs, they ask a lot of questions about doctrine, about text and structure and all that. But what really crystallizes a particular party's perspective and position is when it's tested with hypotheticals, right? And it, and it kind of brings it home. And a couple of the ones that were used, I think, put into sharp relief the limits of the argument that Donald Trump's lawyer was making. So for example, there was a discussion of a couple of hypotheticals. One was, what if a sitting president while in office orders the assassination of a political rival and then leaves office and is not impeached and convicted, which was the condition precedent that Trump advocates for, is that punishable by criminal prosecution? And Trump's lawyer was basically compelled to say, no, that person could not be prosecuted. There was the question of whether or not if the sitting president takes a bribe, takes money in exchange for an official action. By the way, that's official action, right? It's, it's colored by the fact and undermined and, and by the fact that it was done in connection with the bribe. It would fall within the Trump lawyer's assessment and characterization of official act, but it's a bribery-induced action. He also was fairly compelled to say you couldn't be criminally prosecuted for that. What did you make of his answers to those hypotheticals? I think that that was, you know, what the position he was boxed into taking. He he could not dispute that that was the ultimate conclusion you'd reach in that hypo if you accept Trump's position. And I, I think it's sort of game over right there. It's just not possible that a president couldn't be prosecuted in those situations. And that's the hypothetical that exposes, you know, the, the open vein on the neck of Trump's argument. It's just not any way to run a country if a president can, for instance, per Judge Pan's hypothetical, order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate his opponent during an election. I don't know why it was SEAL Team you know, 6. No, no blame. <laughs> It was very specific. I loved her specificity, right? She left nothing to chance. She was very finely tuned. I mean, the pardon example is really a good one, too. You can take a bribe for a pardon, leave office before you're impeached, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. And, of course, the pardon can't be rescinded. So that's a powerful example. I feel like Judge Pan took the examples that had been offered by the government, which were pretty specific and, and pretty good. And she sort of put them on steroids to make her point. There's another aspect of this that I find, as we're talking about it, sort of dangerous. Now, usually it's the case that you want clarity of the law, right? You want notice. The president should know that if he engages in certain kinds of actions, he can be criminally prosecuted after he leaves office. There's an ambiguity here, as we've discussed, although the plain understanding of most people has been that you're criminally responsible. It's not been formally decided by the Supreme Court. So I guess it would be a good thing if the Supreme Court, following the expected decision of the circuit court, takes the position that Jack Smith's team is advocating. That's good. And presidents will know there's a limit to their authority and their power, and they're not above the law. And they can be subject to prosecution and imprisonment for engaging in certain kinds of conduct. If, on the other hand, right, this is just a natural extension of these hypotheticals. If, on the other hand, the Supreme Court sides with Trump and basically clarifies the law in the opposite direction, basically conferring an absolute immunity for almost every kind of conduct imaginable for a president. By the way, on the cusp of maybe Donald Trump himself returning to the presidency, 
what is the incentive structure for that sitting president in the future to commit acts that are clearly criminal? The interesting question is, what is the incentive structure for Joe Biden in the face of a Trump victory? I think that that obviously exposes the weakness in the Trump position and points out that if the Supreme Court were to rule for Trump before we would even theoretically get to a new Trump presidency, Joe Biden could take steps that would prevent that from happening and he would be criminally unaccountable after leaving the White House for for doing those things. And that just, you know, to me, in so many ways, this has always felt like a non-starter to me, because if you think about what it means for Trump to win this argument, it essentially means the end of democracy as we know it. And that just can't be where even this Supreme Court goes. Well, you've now raised the question that I was just going to put to you. You have predicted that the D.C. Circuit Court will rule three to zero against Trump. How do you think, to be more specific? the Supreme Court will rule? Or could they find some off-ramp? You know, this is such a painful question. (laughs) I think the off-ramp is the executive vesting clause argument advanced in one of the amicus briefs. And they could say... Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.